Okay, welcome to the Finding Proof podcast. I'm talking with Jeremy Rodrak today, who is a master of Wing Chun martial arts and a mentor to young people and big people too, uh, around issues to do with overcoming challenges, gaining confidence and facing the world head on. Welcome, Jeremy. I'm really glad to have you here uh, today. We were talking just a little minute ago about there's a big background story to what brought you to martial arts. But before we get into that, I really wanted to have a a really, uh, in your words, I guess, understanding of your message and how your message translates for people of all ages, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Tess, first thing, thank you for, for inviting me and being on the show. I did a little research yeah. on you and I was like, oh, Dr. Tess. Oh, oh. <laughs> Pressure goes up a little bit higher because I don't have those type of degrees. I just have the Kung Fu degrees. And so it was like, okay. oh, this, is, this is fun. Yeah, because it's, in my experience, truth is truth and nobody owns that. And we all filter yeah. it through our own realities, our own kind of yeah. Yeah. deceptions, you know? So, so for me, yeah, so for me, the, the, the main mission I'm on really is about how to empower kids to speak up and own their voice. And for me, it doesn't, when I say kids, it doesn't have to be the, the chronological age, like, oh, you know, five, six, seven, 10, 12. It doesn't have to be that. It could be that inner child that's in all of us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because a lot of times the, the metaphor for our unconscious mind is it's kind of like a little four or five-year-old who can only accept mm-hmm. everything it's given and is watching everything all the time mixed with like 14 trillion puppy dog bumblebees that just want to make us happy and go give us stuff. So like there's all this energy in our unconscious. And when we don't give voice to that inner child or the actual children in our lives, they make themselves wrong and they punish themselves. Um, and that was part of my story is, is a lot of stuff turned inwards, you know, interjection. There's no one there to punish me. I have to punish myself. And, and so that leads to a lot of just horrible behaviors that doesn't need to be there. It's basically bad programming and the machine runs perfect. I don't think there's any broken people other than, you know, you break your arm or break your leg, but mentally, emotionally, I don't think there's anybody broken, but I think we can run defective code and it leads to logical errors and it breaks the flow of what's going on internally. And so that's really the idea is, is whatever you feel, you're allowed to feel. It may be a complete illusion and based on wrong information, but it's real in the moment and you deserve to have that voice and have somebody meet you there and say, hey, I'm sorry you're going through this. Let's work through this together. And, and it's really that creating, when we can create our own emotional safety, all the problems in the world, they disappear because we don't have a need for control. We're not afraid of someone controlling us. We can just say, no, thank you. And here's my boundaries and I can assert myself. And so it's that idea, the, 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 the two sides, assert yourself, speak your voice, own that. And then have the emotional safety that you don't need someone else's approval or permission to do it either. Just be your own person. It's all good. So Jung said, you know, the, the self-actualized person. That's really the goal. Yeah. What I like, I was reading, um, I think it might have been something that I saw on your website. And what I really liked, I think there's a stereotype that we teach kids martial arts or boxing you know those sort of physical self-defense things so they can tackle the bullies but what I really like is your approach is also about teaching the kids that might become bullies or who are already acting out aggressively to have more confidence have find their voice but have more confidence in themselves that they don't need to exert physical strength over others in order to feel strong 
Yeah, absolutely. Is that a fa I mean, favorite suggestion? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we, we take the, this whole idea, because there's all this stuff going on in the world right now about bullying, and it's, it's becoming a global phenomenon. But all the research I've seen is showing time and again, anti-bullying doesn't work because what it does is it keeps people at effect. Because the bully did this, then it triggers all these other things. What we got to do is teach people to be at cause and I'm just bully proof. Your opinion means nothing to me. You can't hurt my feelings without my permission. I only feel bad if I agree with what you say. If there's something inside me that's nervous or insecure and then you validate it externally, internal, external match, then I feel bad. So I yeah. just learned how to armor myself. So now we go to those people that are insecure and they think controlling other people is the vehicle that's going to bring them happiness. There's another way to get your energy, dude. There's another way to, to get to power that you don't have to tear anybody else down. You can just stand inside your own self. And when they start to do that, as they own that space, because it is a physical space as well as a mental space and an emotional space, as you do that, the need for the control or the energy from others it, it's, it's pale in comparison to the full energy of when it flows back and forth and we're both equals and we're both playing together because now the energy amplifies instead of me having to pull from you and then I got to pull from someone else and I'm always chasing the next hit of energy. I can just generate it. I just give you some and all of a sudden it flows back to me and it amplifies. I don't need to get, get, I can just give and what, that always starts to flow. Even if I give to you, you don't necessarily have to feed back somebody else could feed back because that giving inside me creates an energy gap that the universe will naturally flow to fill. So it's, you know, as a human being, psychologically go give to people, help them to feel better. All of a sudden you feel better too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. that. I think that philosophy of, you know, you walk down the street and if you're conscious your mindfulness comes into some of this too, I think mm -hmm. if you're conscious about your face, and if you're walking down the street with a smile on your face, it doesn't have to be a crazy grin, but if you're walking right. down the street consciously smiling as opposed to perhaps your resting face, which might not right. look so friendly, but if right. you're consciously smiling, walking down the street, you're going to have a very different experience of those absolutely in interactions with the people mm -hmm. that you're walking past, yeah? Yeah. So I yeah. think you're, you know, that, that notion of the energy you give out and the energy you put out mm -hmm. is reflected back to you many folds actually quite a good one. absolutely quite a good one. yeah mm. i think of i think of people as just being mirrors so, so if you're getting this from and consistently getting this energy from a group of people or well, what are you sending out first right mm. sometimes you can be in a great mood you just forgot to tell your face so you just got to remind yourself hey face we're in a good mood oh hey we're in a good mood i forgot because we just get to this neutral <laughs> or we're focused somewhere else and you know mm. i have that face where people are like dude are you mad I'm like no i'm just like doing the thing well, i have it too <laughs> Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to do that. It's just my, my eyebrows come down a little bit and I can be, I can really focus in on the things I do. I have lots of spinning plates in my head. Um, yeah. I was one of those high energy kids. I used to climb on top of the roof of the house when I was four, run into traffic. So um, I was on a leash for a reason and, and I just I have a lot of energy. Great. And so as I learned to focus that in and channel it, when I focus it and channel it, I, it can be very, intimidating to other people or it can be just it can seem like i have this this intensity that i'm like huh what oh sorry <laughs> like i have to remind yeah, myself yeah. Hey, wake up yeah 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 i think what what i heard you say there was i have a lot of energy and <clears throat> and what i really liked was i think for a lot of kids who have a lot of energy the i had this child has a lot of energy and therefore all the bad things that finish mm -hmm. that sentence off oh, yeah, tend yeah. to come into play. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for you, it was, I have a lot of energy and, and it was a positive lead into. How absolutely. long did it take you to get to that point? How long did it take you to get 
to uh, owning that energized element to yourself as a positive because it sounds I've, like you've I've, worked on that. Well, I've kind of always been there because I realized I had a lot more energy than other people. And, and when we get into my personal story, I mean, I was in a life and death mode kind of since about six years old. And so I just, you ever play tic-tac-toe with a seven-year-old who thinks unconsciously they're going to die if they lose? It, it brings power, right? And I was already a high-energy kid when I, was a, when I was a toddler. I would run until I collapsed. And don't try to put me to bed. Just, just let him do the thing. My mom came in one time, and I had fallen asleep in the crib standing up because I just refused to go to sleep. And the instant the birds started chirping, I'm up at 100%, and I'm gone. And that was just my natural energy state. And then you add in the situations that happen and add that life and death fear unconscious in there. I just naturally had this just high level of intense. And I realized I'm a freak and I'm going to scare people. So I had to pull back. And I didn't really make myself wrong for that. I was just, I was curious, like, why does everyone move so slow? Why do they think so slow? Why do they? And so it got me really curious. Um, and yes. over time, I realized I just, I have a lot of energy and that, that, that's just, and I can do stuff with it. Cool. So, so a lot of times, and I do this consciously with parents, we, we talk about the big butt, right? And the, the connecting butt. So I give you a compliment and you did amazing, but if you did X, Y, Z, it would be even better. And when you say, yeah. but you just negated everything else you said that was positive. But yeah. if I do, if I do a connecting and that was amazing. And I think if you do this, it's going to be even better. That inserts, that's part of where the, the, the hypnosis comes in, but that stuff inserts into the unconscious easier. It's more palatable and it flows. So we make it an and sandwich. This was great and if you add this, it'll be even better versus a big butt. So no big butts and sandwiches. <laughs> and sandwiches. Okay, yeah. I like it. And sandwiches. I often talk, uh, I have my very own and sandwich where I'm talking often with, with uh, mentoring clients of mine who are stuck with choices. Mm. I want to do this, but I equally want to do this. And I often talk about, well, where's the and? Stop thinking either or, black or white. Yep. Where's the yeah, and? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, uh, <laughs> that was my problem as a kid. Do you want this or this? Yeah. Both. Both. Well, no, you can't. Yeah. You, can't. <laughs> you can't. I'm like, why can't I? Don't tell me what you, yeah. I understand where you are, but why can't I? And I want both. Mm. I want both and. It's not an either or. It's never been an either or. Do you want A or B? Both. Mm. You can't. So how did, how that, does this play out when in the in the um, you know because again the stereotype of martial arts is a lot of discipline, a mm -hmm. lot of structure, a lot of containment too. So how does right. it play out in the work that you're doing in the martial arts side of things? So so we go to that idea of cause versus effect. So if you have to have somebody on the outside affecting you and, and disciplining you and controlling you, right? So so you know people use the word discipline when they actually mean punishment. Right? And most adults, yeah, when they yeah, say, Dis I'm going to discipline my child. No, you're going to punish your child. You're not disciplining them because what is discipline? And they're like, uh, uh, what? No, like, give me a definition that would work. What is, what is it? Give it to me tangibly. And they can't. And I've got a definition that works from four years old, which is when I tell me to do what I'm supposed to do, no matter if I like it or not. That's discipline. Self-discipline is I tell me. Mom discipline is mom tells me. And the key word in there is supposed to do, which requires before discipline, we got to have respect, which is you got to care about stuff. But before I can care about stuff, I got to have focus. I got to be paying attention. But before I can have focus, I got to have self-control. So self-control is the linchpin. Self-control leads to focus, leads to respect, leads to discipline, leads to confidence. That's kind of the waterfall that we run through with our students. And it's an iterative layer as we go. But it's this idea, I don't want to have to run your life, dude. It's your life, your consequences. I'm here to be a guide. And I'm here to be a guardian. It's my job as a seafood, but it's also my job as a parent. 
you're my teacher. You teach me how I should communicate with you and how I should inter interface with you. That keeps me at cause. That allows me to be more flexible because if something doesn't work, I just change it. I'm not stuck on it. And so in the martial arts, when I'm teaching my students, hey guys, keep your hands up. How many times I gotta tell you? And, and when I was a younger instructor and I was at effect, yeah, I'd get mad at them and I'd yell at them and keep your hands up and I'd do all these different things. And it was like, I realized one day, I was like, how many times do I have to tell you to keep your hands up? And a part of my brain said, until you don't. And I was like, ha that's really the key to self-discipline is how do I encourage my students to be self-motivated, self-directed and do it for themselves, not me managing, micromanaging, giving pain for non-compliance because then they're able to be free agents. And so if somebody has to top down external, give these things to control you, you're in, in some trouble. If you can do that stuff for yourself, I don't need my Sifu to be on top of me doing this, this and this. All he has to do is draw my awareness of something. And I can already change it like that. It's just like, oh, thank you, sir, my mistake. And so I train the parents, right? You got a mess in the house. Don't tell them, clean the mess up. Say, hey guys, what could happen here to make it look even better? And the kids will look, oh, and they take action. And then you get to praise them and they get to win and you get to win and you have a clean house. Versus, why do you guys always make a mess? God, I'm always cleaning around here. And you're, you're stacking pain on them, you're stacking pain on yourself and keeping the house clean becomes more and more of a miserable experience for everyone. Yeah. Who wants to play that game? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yep. I'm I'm remembering. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. remembering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you alluded to your story because yes, obviously you had um, a lot going on as a little person. And reading between mm -hmm. the lines, I'm guessing there was a lot going on as a little person for many reasons. Mm -hmm. um, tell us what. Tell us. Tell us your journey. Tell us how that all unfolded so, for you. Okay. So so. Where I began, you know, I didn't find this out until about eight, but the fact that I was even born was kind of awesome because my mom got pregnant 10 times and my brother and I are the only two alive. And, wow. and so, yeah, they, they eventually got their tubes tied because her body just didn't function super well um, with, with pregnancies. So there was a part of me when I was eight and I was already kind of hating myself and life and guilty and all these, these stupid things. Um, I felt really, really guilty that why do I hate myself and why do I hate life? And... I have eight dead siblings and I feel like I need to live for six of them because I got way more energy than my brother. He can live for two and I'll live for six. Well, crap. And now it's, it's even more pain and even more. I'm telling myself this story as a kid. I'm just giving myself mm. more misery without realizing it. And so what happened was, you know, after I was born, we're a military family. We're traveling around the world. It's awesome. I'm this high energy kid. I'm curious about everything. I'm literally fearless. I run into traffic. I want to find out what's going on everywhere all the time. I think I invented FOMO when I was a kid. And <laughs> I was raised on a leash because I had, my mom had no way to keep up with me. She had to have that leash to literally pull me out of being killed twice from the street. Um, when I was four, I got lost in a Turkish bazaar for about 45 minutes and they gave me a Coke and sat me down and go look for the white couple missing, missing a kid. Um, and, and lucky for me, you know, it went that way cause it could have gone another and I could have just disappeared forever. Yeah. Don't even want to think what that life would have been like, but a lot of the Arab culture, they're very protective of children and anybody who hurts a child gets a world of pain before they're killed. Mm. So, so that was a good place to get lost. Mm. But grew up in Turkey and then grew up in Saudi. And when I was in Saudi, uh, we lived in a military compound, and the place that we lived, we had the, the, the billets, and we had the BOQ, and we had the different places, 
And I went out past where the construction area was, and there's a security fence. And my friends, they used to go play in the sand dunes all the time. And I went out where I wasn't supposed to be, and it was just me. And a security guard came down from his, um, from his guard station, making some noise, got my attention. And some things happened. And then the next thing I remember is whipping my head backward. We were under an awning, and I hit my head on like an M16, and I got up and I ran. And I was pulling my pants back up. And so in that moment, the exact details aren't 100% clear, which is probably my unconscious thing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But what did happen is I didn't blame him, and I didn't blame the situation. I blamed myself. I got punished because I was out where I wasn't supposed to be. And if I tell any grown-ups, I'm going to get in more trouble because I was out where I wasn't supposed to be. The, for little kids, they don't know how to dissociate. They don't know how to say what I did was wrong. They internalize that as I was wrong. And so little kids have a very hard time defining that difference. And so that was a tick towards becoming a teenager mentally. And then a year later when we came back to the United States, um, a couple of kids up the street also um, did some things. And, and that led to a further shift towards teenage brain and just not being able to process that as a kid, those memories got suppressed for about 20 years. I moved into about six different games that I was playing unconsciously. Number one was survival. I was in survival mode 24 seven. And it was always, you know, I always knew where the entrances and exits were. I always knew how many people were around me. No one could ever sneak up on me. And everything was life and death. And, and I wasn't conscious of it. I just knew there was this fear in me that, that I could never really explain and an awareness because I began to notice what people say and what people mean are, are separate and there's room to play in there because another game I played is I'm not worth anything. I'm worthless. Right. And so I have no value. It's a really weird place to try and be this high energy person, but at the same time, so there's a lot of like, I began an existential crisis. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What's my fate? By nine, I had decided against taking holy orders and becoming a Franciscan monk because I wanted to be a dad. I reasoned that, how can you be a spiritual father if you've never had the biochemistry turned on? I actually learned the answer to that 25 years later. But uh, is that idea I'm not going to do holy wars? I also quit smoking when I was nine. So I got into some behavior and I realized I'm letting this thing control me and I got to yeah. sit around and do all this stuff to try and get the cigarettes and it's just stupid. And so my brother's four years older than me. So he started and he quit like within like a week. And I kind of kept going from eight to nine years old for about a year. And I just got tired of being controlled. And then by 12, I was doing cross-cultural religious studies. And I'm trying to figure out why is the world the way that it is? Why do people do the things they do? So I was reading the Upanishads, the Rig Veda. I'd read the, the Quran, I read the Torah, I'd read the Bible. Um, I'd read a bunch of Taoist uh, texts, Buddhist texts. I'm trying to figure out just what is this thing and where does it all come from? Because I can't trust anybody. Um, and yeah, so that was like kind of the experiences. And then I swam from like eight to 13 when I quit swimming. There'd been so much battles over swimming. I wanted to quit when I was 11, they wouldn't let me. So by the time I hit 13, I quit talking to the family. I just gave them what I needed them to know to get what I wanted. And yeah. to my parents' credit, I mean, they gave me unconditional love and support and they were always there for me no matter how big of a jerk I was or how mean I was or how whatever I was. Um, they always came back. And, and as a kid, I didn't respect them for that. Now as an adult and as a parent on my own, I kind of get where they were coming from. And one of the things that began to turn the dial for me 
was when I was 14 and my mom and I got into a fight because we were washing, she wanted me to wash the dishes and I'm not going to wash her mm, dishes and I'm throwing down, I'm swearing or whatever. And she went to swap me in the butt and I blocked her hand. I hadn't started martial arts yet, but just that fear came out. And, and she gave me what I realized now was a, was a cry for help. It was a request for information. And what she said was, what happened to you? You were so nice when you were four. And I didn't receive it that way. And then I gave her my own cry for help, which was, I killed him and took his place. Deal with it, bitch. And I walked away. Mm-hmm. And years later, I look back at that and go, dude, really? But we were both screaming for help. Because what I received, when she said that to me, you were so nice when you were four, what I received was, we don't like who you are. We don't like what you are. We liked you 10 years ago when you were brainless and helpless and couldn't do anything for yourself. And so I received that as a very harsh criticism and an attack, which it wasn't. But that's how I filtered it. And you know, years later, I look back at that and go, oh, my bad. Sorry, mom. I didn't even tell them about the abuse until I was in my mid thirties because I still it didn't come it didn't come to conscious until my mid twenties. Then took about another ten years to kind of work through it. And yeah. yeah, so it was just it was a very it was a fun journey. I don't wish it on anybody, and I would never get rid of it because of where it's brought me now and the family that I have, the way I show up for my children and my students, the impact that I can make, the skill sets that I have. I'm who I needed to be when I was six and I can help kids that have been through those experiences, even as they're adults. Now I I can help them put this stuff in order and begin to unpack it and we can truly release it in in my experience. When you fully learned a lesson, you can talk about it in the positive about yourself and for the future. And when you get to that place, there's no more energy. There's no more negative story. There's nothing holding you. It's just, it's a thing that happened. And look, I have hands and they're reversible. It's, it's not that big a deal. It's just kind of, yeah. and I don't, I don't say that lightly and I don't mean to belittle anybody else in their experience and where they are. And I would never mm-hmm. say to anyone else, Oh, this bad experience, you had the gift and you did it. I think that's, that's trite. And I think that is harmful, yeah. but I can say for myself, it was the critical mm-hmm. gift that shifted my reality. And without it, I wouldn't be who I am. And I don't even know where or what I would be. I can't even fathom it because it's become such a large part of where I am now and the knowledge and the skills that I've grown. And I can imagine that, that, you know, that 10 year journey, you said it was a 10 year journey to work Mm -hmm. through all Mm -hmm. of that. And, and, you know, having worked with abuse survivors myself as a psychologist, I know how hard that work can be and how many Mm -hmm. steps backwards there are for every step forward Mm -hmm. that is gained. So it says something about the tenacity and the, the persistence to be able to push, keep pushing forward despite oh, yeah. all the steps back. For those oh, yeah, that, that's it. Tenacity would definitely be I don't, I don't give up, I don't quit, and I don't lose mm. ever. Yeah. The only way to stop yeah. me is to kill me, and I'm not dead yet. So I'm still coming full force. That's, when I was younger, I had two speeds I had zero and a, and a thousand. There was nothing in between. I didn't know my first martial arts class. We did the warm-up, jumping jacks, push-ups, sit-ups, squats. The week before, I'm like, oh, I'm going to try this class out. I better get in some shape. So I like, went to do a push-up, and I was 20. Hadn't worked out in years. And I did like one push-up. I went from the top all the way down, all the way back up. And I was like, oh, that's not bad. Let me do another one. And I bent my arms, and my arms collapsed. And I laid on the ground for five minutes, and I literally couldn't move my arms. I had hit muscle failure. So I like laid there, and I had to roll over on my back and sit up. Today, I can do more than one push-up. 
But yeah. <laughs> I, went, I went with that physicality to that first class. and like, all right, we're going to do 50 jumping jacks, 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, 50 squats. I did the best of everything I could, and then I went to the bathroom and threw up. And then the, my seafood grandmaster me was like, oh, he's not coming back. And then three months, <laughs> three months later, I was training seven days a week. Wow, yeah. So, so, I mean, it was like, here's where I need to be. This is what I need to be doing. Yeah, Let's yeah, go. Yeah. And again, it was yeah. that I don't, I don't half step. I'm full court press all the time, 24-7. Yeah. Horrible yeah. way to live, by the way, because you need to recover. You need to recharge. You do. Rest is really, really valuable. I mm. think um, part of your story, you know, the, the trauma and, and the abuse that you survived, um, you talk about having been in survival mode a lot, and I really want to touch on that because I think that for abuse survivors and trauma survivors, generally speaking, you know, especially children, that survival instinct is the that's the safety mechanism, you know, that's the, mm -hmm. the way our brains are designed to yep. get us through traumatic events. And for a lot of kids where there is sustained exposure to trauma, that, that um, squashing down and numbing down of the mm -hmm. emotional pain, at, which is a survival strategy, an involuntary survival strategy, it's automatic. Mm -hmm. The older they get, the harder it can be to step outside of that. And I, and I can, uh, you know, I can hear that part of your journey was also being able to connect. You know, obviously you now have a family, you've been able to connect and yeah. create relationships. And part of what you do is helping others connect and create yeah. relationships that are meaningful for them yeah. too, you know, their, fam their yeah. families and so on. Yeah. yeah. So, so earlier in my journey, I would have said, you know, I was basically borderline disassociated because I had a very hard time forming emotional attachments. Um, my parents gave me unconditional love. I saw them as a means to an end and I gave them what I needed them to know to get what I wanted. At the same time, I had a cat um, bandito and he was my cat for like 14 years. And I remember my grandfather died when I was like nine or 10 and I cried because my parents were crying but not because I felt any particular reason or need to. I just felt like that's mm -hmm. what I'm supposed to do right now because they're upset. So I think I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I did that. And when Bandito died, I was like 21. And that was like the first time I had cried in between. And there had been times when I was in high school where like I wanted to cry, but I wouldn't let myself be weak like that. And I could feel the heat burning behind my eyes. I could feel the sense. I could feel the energy in my tear ducts. But there was something in me that said, no effing way, I'm stronger than this, I'm better than this, nothing can control me like that. And, and, and I knew that's not really me as a human being. That is something else. And eventually I gave a label to it and a descriptor, and I, I used some, some Jungian archetype modeling and using some physicality to kind of identify these different models and parts of me, and then talk to them and use them to help reintegrate. And, and that really was... I remember where I was when I, when I reintegrated some major pieces. Um, I was at a, at a workshop with Steve Linder and doing parts integration was just, it was a watershed moment. And there were people in the room that like didn't recognize me because I had such a peaceful, large smile they had like never seen before. And they were like, we didn't recognize you sitting there for a few minutes. It took us a while. Cause I was just in this completely amazing place. And the, the metaphor is home. I had finally come home. And yeah. so so yeah, you get in that place of survival and it's just, you have to, you don't know who you can trust and there's a part of you that you know you're worthless. So why are they wasting time talking with you, engaging with you, doing anything with you? So they're already suspect. I've been, a, I've been attacked, I've been this and that. What are you gonna do to me? And I'm not gonna yeah. let you. And there's this, this yeah. like a caged animal type of energy because you're just constantly defensive. You're constantly, you're gonna take advantage of me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take what I need from you or I'm gonna do what I need to do 
and, and being able to just be present with someone who's in that space and just be chill. Right? I have a student in my school right now who is 10 who has tried to commit suicide. And, and you go, oh, my God. And so, like, as adults, you know, a lot of the adults are like, oh, my gosh. And they're in their head and all this stuff and meaning. And I'm like, she is where she is. What's the problem? Now, when I engage with her, I leave her space to be where she is and to feel what she feels. And if she wants to be defensive with me and she wants to be surly and all the rest, that's fine. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Because at the same time, I'm able to connect with that four-year-old inside her and I can get her to laugh and be a 10-year-old kid again. And getting her to experience that in a place where that's kind of cool. And then I move on. I don't put a lot of energy into it. And that's not like, oh my gosh, you're being like a regular kid now. Isn't that me? And I watch the adults do that and I want to slap the crap out of them because I'm like, yeah. oh my God, stop. You're, you're losing all rapport. You're losing all influence. You're treating them like a child. They're not a child. There is a part of them that is, but you're disrespecting all these other protective mechanisms that are in place yeah. to protect that child. You got to get on the same team. You got to get on the same team with the protectors and you got to be like, I got your back. We're cool. I don't want anything from you. I don't need anything from you. I just think you're pretty sweet. Give me a high five, dude. All right, awesome. Moving on. And, and you keep that kind of distance. Now there's room. For, it's, you're dealing with a skittish cat. There's room for them to come towards you. You try to make a cat come towards you unless you have food. Ain't going to work. But if you can just be present and be chill, the cats will come over and be like, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. Right. I, I live with three cats and they're usually one or all of them are in the same room as me and my wife because that's just how they are. That's just how we are. Um, they just like hanging out that we don't have touch. They don't have to look. I mean, one of them's blind. He can't see us anyway, but he's always <laughs> like he loved, they love our energy and they're just, they're just chill. Right. So, so it's kind of like that when you're dealing with somebody who has been abused or is in that place, you, you can't force them. You can't push Positional authority gets you absolutely nowhere because I said so, because this is the right thing, because this is what good people do. I'm not good people. F yourself. I mean, that was, I remember that language pattern in my head when I was a kid because people would be like, oh, well, good people do this. I'm like, I'm not good people. So that's easy. That, that obviously doesn't apply to me. So I, I had these little, that doesn't apply. That doesn't apply. I could just move all that stuff, all that social conditioning. I don't have a strong herd instinct. I never have. I don't have a need to belong the way a lot of people do. If I'm by myself, fine. I'm awesome company. Screw you guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that it makes it weird in a group dynamic because I don't, I don't take it personal. I'm not like, oh, you're ostracizing me. I don't care. I, we play together. We amplify our energy and everything gets better. But I don't need you to – my social drive is different. And, and I have select people that I engage with, and I'm good. I, I can fill myself up. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly self-contained until I met my wife. I mean, I went through, I went through from 2011, I went through some massive stupidity and, and did some really serious growth. It was massively painful, but the part of me, I had to go put myself in these really compromising situations to force that, that protective thing inside me had gotten so strong that it wouldn't let me to get to the level I'm at now to have my daughter, to have my stepson, to have my wife, this house, how I was living, I, I couldn't. And so that protective piece of me, put me in a stupid situation and multiple versions of the same stupid situation to force me, this isn't who I am, to have that battle and go, who am I really? And plant the damn flag and own it. And that's a scary place to be when you're in survival mode because, well, what if I'm wrong? I mean, there was a part that's of me, so before, yep. well, before my, yep. daughter, my daughter was born, because I didn't have quote unquote regular emotional attachments, I was worried like, what am I gonna feel when she's born? Am I going to be there the way that I want to be there? Or am I just going to be like, 
you know, she's a piece of furniture. Thankfully, now she's amazing and I absolutely love her and, and, and I'm there for her in so many different ways. I do have that emotional attachment. I do have that connection. At the same time, I have some distance and can allow her to have her own experience. Because I realize when she's 18, she'll be her own person. My goal is to get her there and be self-sufficient, not dependent. Yeah. I love the idea of your um, willingness to, not the idea of it, but I guess, you know, the fact that you are so willing to talk about your journey. Um, and I know that you said to me before we started recording, you said, you know, I've spent a lot of time working through this, so I'm now okay with talking mm-hmm. about this. Um you know, there's there's a tendency, I think, for people to uh, polish everything. You know, put a veneer mm-hmm. up and 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 um, maybe just touch on. Yeah, some bad stuff happened to me, but <laughs> it's all good now. It's all good now. Let's talk about how it's all good now. And I think right. I was I was only saying to a friend recently that uh, when we talk about our experiences, whatever they might be in life, when we talk about the difficult parts or the sticky parts or the traumas, traumatic parts, sometimes what we're doing is we're shining a light for the path forward for those mm-hmm. who are coming behind us who are experiencing something yep. similar, for those who recognise yep. the journey in themselves as well. And, mm-hmm. and by being able and comfortable to speak about your journey, you're demonstrating that you can come through this. Absolutely. And not only can you come through this, you can come through this in a way that is helpful to others. And not everybody's going to, you know, want mm-hmm. to help others as well. Right. And it shouldn't be their burden to feel that they need to do that. But for you, the idea now, of course, is you're moving from a place where you are helping people one-on-one, you know, in your classes and, and the mentoring work that you're doing to I'm guessing now you've got the book and you're now right. on a podcast and you're right. just looking at the more people you can Impact, yeah. the better, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So what's next? What's next for you? Well, for me, it actually go back to something you just said, that idea of you're shining a light through the path. That, that perfectly encap- encapsulates what it means to be a Sifu in the Chinese tradition of martial arts. My job as a Sifu is I'm just on the same path further ahead. So what I can do is I can tell you, hey, duck, lift your foot, watch out for that tree stump, watch out for this, because I've been there, I've done that, right? And, and we've got a history, 1,500 years, of a teacher and a student, and we're going through that same cycle. So even as psychology, you know, technology changes, the human element, the human factor is still the same. And so we need that same process of integration. That's why the Jungian psychology is, I'm such a big fan of the archetypes, because there's these milestones in how a person integrates. It's so important. And, and for me, I read a book, it's by Seth Godin called Survival is Not Enough, and it's a marketing book. But it's the idea that as a, as a company, as a business, as, a, as an idea, as anything, you can't just try to survive. You have to go for thrive. And the way you thrive, you have to be connected and integrated because anything in isolation always dies. It must be connected and it must contribute and it must be contributed to. The, the growth and the contribution, they are the same process and they feed and they nurture and they weave in and out and you've got to be part of that. And that's really that drive for me is, you know, I can only reach so many people in a box in Dayton, Ohio. And, and I love the work that I'm doing, but I see so much pain and confusion and, so many people with just bad ideas or games that don't work or stories that aren't worth telling. It's like, guys, just a couple of dial changes, everything unlocks. And so, yeah, for me, the next step is um, we're putting together an eight week digital course for families. So the parents can begin to understand where are your children, not from a, you know, here's how it should be type of thing. It's, it's specific strategies. Listen for these language patterns. Look at the way they behave. Look at the way they communicate with you. You can begin to unpack how they learn 
how they model their internal version of the world, what type of things motivate them, what type of things connects to how can I enter into my child's model of the world and interface with them as an equal versus as I'm the daddy and you have to listen. Because that stuff doesn't work, especially with kids that have been through trauma, any of that kind of crap, they just toss you over the window. And if you're like, you know, hey, I'm going to speak the kid language and I'm going to be all hip and be in the thing with the thing. Again, they tune you out because you're trying to be too hip. So I come in and I'm dropping like $6 words on the kids and we're going through like anti-disruptionitarianism. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about the nomenclature and they're like, wait, what? And then I, I, at one point I was teaching like six-year-olds how to do algebraic notation. I had a math teacher ask me to stop. And like, but it's fun. And they get it. We're still doing pluses and minuses. We're just playing hide the number and where is it and play detective. And they're like, yeah, but you're screwing up my curve because I only have two kids that do this and everyone else, they're messing with the other students. When I was in second grade, I learned cursive on my own because it was in the workbook. So I taught myself and then I taught the girl next to me six weeks beforehand. So I got in trouble. So what am I supposed to learn from this? Don't be intelligent. Don't notice. Don't be proactive. Don't be responsible. Don't share. What am I? I mean, I really had issues. I'm like, what are you trying to teach me? This is just stupid. Like I could begin to unpack my teacher and just go, oh my gosh. And it was, it was, it was hard because I could, I didn't know exactly how, but I could start to see that stuff. And so it's teaching families, teaching parents, how do you help your kids to speak and be heard and you can hear them, you can be heard by your kids also, and how to create that emotional safety. How can you create that space where your kids can speak and you can hear them and then we can deal with it. I don't have to like what you're saying, I don't have to agree with what you're saying, but I wanna hear it because it's your truth in this moment, awesome, now we can deal because you told me, I know where you are. Let's figure out where we're going next. Because it's it's a two-way street. Your kids are slowly gaining more consciousness and more control you're not going to micromanage their lives, right? Mm-hmm. At, at 13 to 15, they can actually decide activities for themselves and commit to them and follow through and be self-starters. They don't do that at seven. I had a family and, and the mom was like, well, we had to come to Jesus moment because he's not taking this thing seriously. And he's seven. Well, his older brother and older sister do. They're 12 and 15. He's seven. Well, but we just need him to be more serious. He's seven. Well, we're just going to quit because he's not being serious. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I get I if, if I hit them I get in trouble what no it's just talking to a wall and it's, so it's not that they don't love their kids they just have bad information yeah and so it's, it's, it's I think how do I get that out I think a lot of what you're what you're a lot of what you're talking about resonates really nicely with me in terms of so many times the skill that is actually needed is listening not 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 what you say not what you do it's actually being still and being present and listening and i think that that's that's right like you can see where you know the martial arts mm-hmm. and you know eastern philosophies around mindfulness and being present mm-hmm. and what you're wanting to do for families they do yeah. actually come together quite yeah. nicely yeah yeah well we're gonna fight your body language tells me where your openings are and how i should approach right so if you've got your hands up like this it's gonna be really hard to punch you in the head so I should move on with my life and go somewhere else. Or I give you an opening and I encourage you to punch me in the head. Because then if I do this, chances are you're not going to go around me this way because it wastes time. And you're not going to come this way because it wastes time. It's going to come straight down the pipe. Great. I know that. So now you're open. I can redirect and then you're open because I know where you're going. In the word of the Italians, I give them an offer they can't refuse. <laughs> 
right? So, it. so, so how do we apply that with our kids, with our partners, with ourselves? Mm-hmm. Same deal. That's why it's, it's, for me, it's games and stories. The game is the behavior and the story is the justification. And that's, that's in our, our bow is the ancient Shaolin thing. The, the dragon is the wisdom and the tiger is the aggression in the body. So you put those two together. This is the stories we tell, which is a justification for the games we play to get the energy we need to live. So body, mind, and then the heart is where it connects. And that's the emotion. We need those three pieces. So what energy do you want? Want to be happy or small, sad, cold? Cool. That will begin to start telling me the types of games you play. Because there are some people that think and they believe they only deserve negative energy. They deserve to be in pain. That will affect the games and the stories. And those become self-perpetuating cycles until you meet someone who goes, well, what about something different? And that's really what I want to be is just that go, but there can be a different story. There can be a different Mm -hmm. game. Mm, Fantastic. So where do people find you? If people want to look into what you're up to and what you're doing and how you might be able to help them, where do they find you? So we have theparentingprogram.com. That's the first one. Um, And that's kind of where I do my work is the parenting program. And I'll be having a podcast come out soon. And I'd love to have you as a guest. No pressure. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Because it is about. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. So so it's about empowering kids and having more resources and experts to do that. And, and, And everybody's different wavelengths. So sometimes I might say something. And you could say the exact same thing, but worded 2% different. And that's a human versus chimpanzee. And it resonates for someone that 2%. So that's why I want to expose people to lots of information. So there's the parenting program. And then on Facebook, um, it's Jeremy Rodruck. It's my professional page. So Jeremy Rodruck, just slash. And then on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, it's, it's Kung Fu Guy Jeremy. And then uh, LinkedIn is Jeremy Roderick as well. And I'm, I'm trying to be kind of all those places just to have basic information going out. Mostly I live on yeah. Facebook. That's where I spend most Mostly. of Mostly. Yeah. 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 Me too. Me too. That's where I feel at home. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For a, a really great conversation. I know it's very late in the world where yeah. you are. So yeah. I'm going to let you go. Now, nah, nah, this is like, the guy who sleeps standing up, right? That's right. My, my bedtime is like, uh, like midnight, one o'clock sometimes. And I get up at like yeah. six, five, six. Um, when my yeah, daughter yeah. came home, she came home on oxygen for the first eight months after 13 weeks oh, wow. in the hospital. And the first eight days, I didn't sleep at night. I would just stay awake and play video games and just kind of sit with her because she had oxygen and she had a pulse meter. And like, I just, I was like, nope, I'm, I'm, anything goes, I'm right here because my wife sleeps really heavy. I don't, I'm just going to be here. And I would grab like mm. nine to two, I would grab a nap. And I just yeah. did that. And like the parents were taking bets on when's he going to crack. And yeah. in eight days, I was like, I think I'm done with this routine. I think she's stable enough. I think I'll change my sleep pattern. But I never got to that cracking place um, because I've been mm. wanting to be a dad for 30 years. And I was, I was hungry for the experience. So for me, it was yeah, just amazing. Okay. So I encourage. She's a lucky girl. She's, I'm a lucky guy. No, she's amazing. <laughs> and... and my parents, you know, my mom cursed me with the may you have a child just like you. And I was like, fine, I'll know what to do. Well, <laughs> guess what? I got that kid. And so far, we're doing pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. You'll be, you'll yep. be partners in crime for life. It sounds like a lot of fun. A lot of my fun. Plan. Well, my plan. Thank you so much for joining the Finding Proof podcast today. Um, stay right there. I will end our little recording and then uh, we will say our very private farewells. Okay. <laughs> Works for me. And thank you for joining us, everybody who's been with us today. Talk to you again very, very soon. Bye.